Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan, presented by Michelob Ultra Pure Gold. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 29. Our guest today is someone who grew up amongst the wild and raw coastline of South Africa's East London at a time when the country was ending its five-decade system of racial segregation with the end of apartheid in the early 90s. She was an immediate national talent, competing against and beating the boys en route to winning nine South African national championships. She was identified early on by the surfing world, found her own way around the world, and qualified for a four-year stint amongst the world's best on the Elite Championship Tour. And she's flourished in a very diverse post-CT career as a free surfer, brand ambassador, and staple of the WSL commentary team. Unquestionably, one of the most important female voices in surfing today, and one we want to hear more from. Please enjoy the lineup's low-tide conversation with South Africa's Rosie Hodge. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once. Let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. It's up here, boxing. South Africa's Rosie Hodge joining the lineup at Low Tide. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Rosie. Well, thank you, Dave. I'm actually a big fan of your show. Um, I've actually listened to every episode while I walk my dogs in the morning. So thank you for keeping us entertained and pumping out some good content. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, keep, you're keeping our lights on, which is good. And how are you doing today? Where are you today? Who are you with? Um, I'm awesome. I'm in my home in San Clemente, California. Um, had a super early dawn patrol session down at Lowers. Um, managed to get a couple waves, a couple scraps. So I'm feeling pretty good. What has the crowd situation been like at Lowers? <laughs> because throughout the quarantine, I've seen yeah. like pretty much the entire spectrum of everyone's supposed to be in their homes and the camera has 200 people on the peak. And then at the other side of it, it's like, oh, everyone got in trouble and now it's pumping and no one's out there. What, what's it been like for you down there? You know what? I'm always impressed at the capacity that Lowe's can accommodate. And um, we definitely saw a lot of people coming out, like especially when that stay-at-home order was implemented. There was a really fun south swell and it was, it was crazy. It was great weather, great waves and a lot of humans down at the beach and just like just like a flock of buzzards just flogging waves all the way to the beach. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been interesting times. We've had a lot of waves lately too. So um, it's, there's, there's been a decent crowd. Orange County, it's an interesting place. I grew up down there and I was down there a couple of weeks ago visiting my mom and I met up with Pat O'Connell for a surf at Salt Creek and it was pretty crowded and Pat got this left-hander while I was paddling back out and I heard this kid, he's a kid with stickers, like a sponsored little dude go, that guy got a good one. And I thought to myself, that guy, like that's Pat O'Connell, like endless summer too, he's king of Salt Creek. You just <laughs> You're like, excuse me, young man, you, you wind your tongue in yeah. and you have a look at who's out in this lineup. Yeah. I mean, Pat O'Connell, there's so many stories about him out at Salt Creek. He, he's, you know, a demigod. Well, and I was thinking, I'm like, oh, geez, like. Like maybe the kid just doesn't know, like maybe I'm old or maybe Pat's old or whatever. But I was immediately <laughs> struck like once again by the likely gap between 
who people really are um, and their story. And then the impression that like other people's have other people have just based on how they're exposed. Like this came up in the Peter Mel conversation because he's like the gnarliest guy in surfing, but he's like everyone's like Mr. Rogers on the broadcast. And it kind of comes up in all our episodes. And I mean, personally, I and I think like a lot of our listeners, we just learn a ton about people who maybe we've only been exposed to or maybe they've only been exposed to through social media or the broadcast. And I think for you um, in particular, like that's totally true, like between your South African roots and your championship tour bona fides and your health and well-being influence, your free surfing career, your relocation to Southern California and your place on the CT commentary team. I mean, you are inarguably one of the most prominent female voices in surfing and you've had an amazing career so far, but it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if the modern fan only knew like a fraction of your story. What do you think about that? I mean, wow, thank you. That was a lot of compliments. Um, it, it is. It's, it's, it's interesting because I think just having this job with the WSL and, and being like a forward facing individual, um, it does give you, a, you know, a bit of attention. And but at the same time, like I love hearing from people that feedback when they come up to you and like, I love what the WSL is doing. I watch every event, like you doing such a great job. Like, I love that part of it. And I don't think there's any kind of, I don't know. It like you, you, you mentioned earlier, sometimes people aren't uh, reaching far, far enough back in the history of, of surfing and, and um, giving respect to the people that have got, got us to where we are. So I, I love that part of surfing of, of knowing the history and really respecting um, the generations. I'm not saying, not not in any way like, you know, there's there's so many good people out there, but it's just, it's been an interesting dynamic just seeing, you know, how people kind of play the hierarchy or whatever it is in surfing. Um, but yeah. You grew up in South Africa on the Eastern Cape, which I think is about four hour drive north of Jeffreys Bay in East London. Um, what is East London like for a surfer growing up and how did you get into surfing? Well, <laughs> they call East London slum town, um, but I'm, I'm totally against that. I believe that the town that I'm from, it's just, it's incredible. It's got, a, it's really has a wealthy coastline, just so many waves, very uncrowded, like a raw open ocean power, raw open ocean, just wildlife. Um, we have some amazing surfers that have come out of that area. I mean, Wendy Boito was just my absolute idol growing up. She's obviously a world champion. And then we had Greg Amsley, Brad Bricknell, Royden Bryson. Um, so we've just got like this wealth of talent that I grew up amongst and, and had mentors like that to, to uplift my career. So I really love where I'm from and, and grateful for what it gave me. Yeah, and it's, it's late 80s, early 90s when you're growing up there. What, what did your parents do and, and how did you get your start in surfing? Did your parents surf? So my dad, um, he surfed when he was growing up and he always tells a story about when he was about a young teenager and, and his parents weren't really wealthy and he actually went and, and worked on one of the railroad, railroads or something back home just to earn enough money to, to buy a custom surfboard. Um, and he was just frothing. He said like his, it was summer holidays and his friends would come by and like yell at him and mock him for working. And he was just toiling away, like trying to make enough money to, to get this board. So, um, 20 years later, he actually had that board in, in our garage and we would take it out of the garage and throw it in the pool and just disrespect the thing. Like, just like 
bash it against the concrete edges of the pool. But my dad was like stoked to see us like love the water and, and get on a board. And later my brother and I, um, we borrowed a board and my dad would uh, push us into our first few waves when I was about eight years old, seven, eight years old. That's amazing. And you said East London's called Slumtown. Like, why is that? <laughs> it's called Slumtown. <laughs> There's not a whole lot going on. And it's just, um, yeah, I think that the surfers from the other regions like Durban and mm. Cape Town, like the more glitzier towns, they would kind of come into East London and just be like, oh, okay, so this is it. We have um, really good waves, but it's super sharky. Um, and then we have a world-renowned, well, I call it world-renowned, but a, a milkshake bar called Friesland in one of the dodgier parts of town. And that's basically the extent of the not, uh, notoriety of our town. The milkshake bar, the waves and the sharks. <laughs> Do you have any shark stories from growing up? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've got a couple. You know, I started surfing so, so early and then it, it was like you'd hear these stories and then, you know, these attacks would happen and, and it was really sad. Like a lot of them didn't end very well and, um, you know, just like kind of was eye-opening. Like you kind of have this innate instinct when you're back home surfing. You're like, if I feel dodgy, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in, I'm going to listen to that kind of nagging voice inside of me. Um, the one that I had was Greg Emsley out at the point at Queensbury where a huge great white circled Greg for, for minutes. You know, he was like just basically cat and mouse with this huge great white eyeball to eyeball. Um, and I was basically on the inside watching it all go down. And thankfully it ended with both of us on the beach, just shaking our heads, crying, just like um, having a real moment with uh, some of the wildlife. And then when something like that happens, for you like wh what is the what's the timeline between you know giving greg a hug on the beach and crying and getting it out and you going back into the ocean like is it years it was, or days yeah uh, we had to i had to go back the next day i mean there's that theory where you have to get back on the horse and it's like it's one of those things like it it happened a lot back home i remember a junior event um in jeffrey's bay at the point early morning, everyone's out practicing and I was on the beach watching everyone and saw this shark come up to one of the surfers, grab him, pull him down, like shake, and then like head back out to sea. Joseph Crone was the guy mm. and his board was snapped in half. Um, so he was basically left to swim back to the shore. And the guys that helped him, um, well, one of the guys, Shannon Ainsley, he's the famous guy where they captured the two great whites yeah. at one of my home breaks. He was the guy that went up to Joseph and, and paddled and swam with him back to shore. Joseph came in and he had like perforated marks on his wetsuit, like where the shark had um, like grabbed onto him, but not a scratch on him. So he had holes in his wetsuit and it was that close, like in his, in his abdomen, his midsection of his body and not a scratch on him. And we moved the contest from the point and we served Anne's Avenue and it all started within a couple of, <laughs> a couple of hours later. It's a, I mean, having been fortunate enough to go to South Africa a few times, it, it feels like an entirely different surfing experience um, from, where you're, from where most people are used to. And as you said, the waves are so good and the surfers are so good. But geez, like that's, that's just something that, as you said, the ocean's really, really alive there. But it's also 
part of the experience. I mean, you have that sardine season that happens between May and late July in South Africa, where basically the whole food chain is uh, passing through the coast of South Africa and you get to see just incredible wildlife. You've got the birds diving, watching them on rotation. You've got the dolphins coming through the whales and obviously everything else that follows that. So it's it's just uh, everyone that I speak to when they go to Jeffreys Bay or where they have an experience in South Africa, it's just, it's so grounding and real and, and it's, it's beautiful. Now, Apartheid, which was the governing system of institutionalized racial segregation, it was implemented in South Africa in 1948 and dismantled in the early 90s. Um, So you were born in South Africa under the apartheid era, and you grew up largely in the immediate aftermath of its dismantling. Um, Can you describe what it was like growing up in South Africa at that time and and your kind of young experience with, with race relations? Yeah, I mean, South Africa's just got such a long history. I mean, you bring up apartheid and that's just such a stain on our, you know, on our history as a, as a nation. And um, but at the same time, for me, like you said, I, uh, I was born in 1987. Apartheid essentially came to an end um, when Nelson, our first democratic election, which happened in 1994, and Nelson Mandela of the ANC was elected as our president. That was, I mean, I, I remember that moment, like Mandela walking out with Winnie Mandela, like waving to the crowd. He's only probably released from Robben Island a free, few years earlier. He'd spent 27 years in prison. But yeah, I remember, you know, them taking down the old South African flags and erecting the new ones and uh, the new currency coming into coming into existence and just all of those little things that mark this new era in South Africa. And I feel fortunate, like, I'm just so sad that that happened, but I also feel fortunate for the time that I grew up in in South Africa because it was, like, another thing in South Africa was raw, it was right there, and and the way that I was learning and the school that I was integrated into, my family, the way that I was brought up was just wholeheartedly in a new South Africa and and seeing that change come about. So, yeah, I mean, we've, like I said, South Africa's got a long history. We've got a lot to... um, kind of work through and but like I said it's amazing to see what someone like Nelson Mandela and the ANC and the Freedom Fighters were able to do to bring that around and, and spread forgiveness and and a, a different kind of message. For sure and I mean you've been living in America for a few years now and um, you know race relations following the the May 25th murder of George Floyd have really overtaken the national conversation here um, you know, what are your thoughts on the present day situation in America? And, and are there any comparisons or contrasts with your experience growing up in post-apartheid South Africa? It's It's been surreal. I think to be sitting in 2020 and be waking up with a knot of anxiety and a sadness that's looming over everyone at the moment, it's, over, it's almost overwhelming, you know, like just to have, you know, that kind of veil and that curtain because you mentioned like, growing, like living in Orange County, you're in like a sort of bubble and a vacuum in society. And it's like everything is just amazing. And then to like kind of scratch the surface and really have that like look at like what's really going on. Yeah, it's just been it's been a sad couple of weeks. And I think, yeah, it's definitely, you know, those comparisons. And, and when that that hate gets stirred up it's, and just those bad feelings, it's, it's just it's, it's not a good place to be in. You know, they're not they're not perfect comparisons, but 
you know, in the little bit of background I've gotten on it um, and my own experience here, you know, you said it was a hard time and, and not a great time in South African history, but it, it was very forward facing, you know, um, apartheid mm -hmm. and the segregation. And so I think I'd imagine that when it broke, the entire country was digesting that for decades and people that were in support of it were like so, so happy. And it, it, it in a lot of ways, like allowed people like cathartically allowed people to move on, I think. If you contrast it to here, it was, as you kind of said, it was it was really under the surface for so many of us, you know, and it wasn't mm -hmm. in your face and it wasn't direct. But, you know, this has kind of blown things out into the open. So it's it's a little I, I kind of think it's like looking at the two situations, like one was just very, very forward facing and the other was sort of subversive. And now it's forward facing and everyone's having to kind of wrestle with it in their own way, like, um, you know, whether they were aware of what was happening in America or not, you know, and now everyone is, is sort of having to educate themselves. Definitely. And, and even when you look at apartheid in, apartheid in South Africa, you've got like, it took so many years for it to come to the forefront on the international stage. There was like propaganda going out to the international news outlets until, you know, it took like until the seventies or whatever it was for people to really say like, Hey, the sanctions on South Africa, like, we're boycotting South African sports. Like we're really going to put like a, a, a squeeze on you guys. You're out of the Commonwealth and people start, you know, you had the passive resistance and people had the protests and everything. And, and a lot of them added, ended tragically. And, and I think that like really gave a bit of a more of a, a spotlight on South Africa globally. And, and now you've got, you know, you've got the news, you've got the means to like get these messages out there where people can go and, and really have a look at what's going on and, and not kind of hide from it anymore. So it's, it's kind of important to, to, to be involved, educate yourself and, and, and take a stance on what's happening. You know, and surfing, it's got such an interesting history when it comes to anything political, you know, for, I mean, for decades, it tried to stay kind of apolitical and, and kind of tracked into the whole sporting adage of like sport and politics don't mix, which has completely been inverted by 2020. But, you know, in 1985, um, you know, Tom Carroll, Tom Curran, Martin Potter and Shane Haran actually boycotted the three South African events on tour um, in protest against apartheid, which which kind of tracks with like a lot of what was happening in surfing at the time. The events were still trying to happen, but it that was kind of almost professional surfing's first full clash with the with anything political. Definitely. And even, I mean, I was having conversations with Megan Abubo and she was telling me, you know, when uh, herself and Sunny Garcia used to come over to South Africa early 90s um, and the way that they were treated, I was just like, wow, I was just really embarrassed that that was happening over here. But to see, you know, take have people take that stance and when they look back now and, and, and the impact that that has and the way that you can thread that into our surfing community to really be like, hey, for Tom and, and Parts and you know other Tom and just those people to do that and, and for people to really just recognize it. And is that, that to me is just so important, especially now. Yeah. And I mean, the surfing community had kind of rallied around it even prior to that. I think Sean's dad, I think his name's Ernie Thompson, Sean's, Sean's father. I remember reading a story about him taking in um, Eddie Icao when Eddie couldn't get into a hotel when Eddie was traveling on tour. So it is a it is a really cool thing that surfing is intended to kind of um, not discriminate against anyone because the ocean doesn't care who you are, right? And so I think 
there's a lot of connection between anyone going out and surfing with someone else and you kind of see a fellow traveler in that person and it's like, I'm going to look after you if I can kind of thing. It does. It's not, that's not for everyone in surfing, obviously, (laughs) but it's, I think that's an undercurrent that people can tap into. It's a rule of thumb, right? I mean, we get to travel and I think that also brought for me like an open mindness when you're traveling and you just getting to experience cultures and you're getting welcome into people's homes that just you carry that spirit with you. That surfing community is like you're going to look after each other no matter where you go. So, yeah, I've actually heard that Eddie story. I think Jody Wilmot told us a few times. And, yeah, I mean, because also you think about people in South Africa under that rule, they've grown up in that, like that's like the, the, the mindset. There's a normalization and to it, yeah. Exactly. And then it's just like once you, you kind of break out of that and you get to – get a bit of an eye-open experience, you realize and you recognize that, hey, that way of life, it's it's not right. So, you know, those are the people that are staying there, they don't really have that that change of heart or that change of mind because it's so deep-seated and, and it's something that they've learned over time. Yeah, and I mean, getting to travel on tour, whether someone like yourself competing on the stage or someone like myself writing about someone like yourself, it is super eye-opening. And and for you, I know you mentioned Wendy Boita was from East London, four-time world champion, Greg Emsley. I'm under the impression you signed with Roxy at a really young age, at eight. Um, you won nine South African championship titles. So you were destined for the world stage at a, at a really young age. Is that is that accurate? I mean, I, f- I instantly fell in love with surfing as soon as I stood up on a board and um, went to my first few events. And I was just like, wow, this is, you know, I don't want to be an archaeologist, a vet or an accountant like my dad anymore. Like, I want to be a pro surfer. Like, how do I make that happen? So, yeah, I signed with Roxy when I was about eight years old and I was actually on part of the Roxy team um, for 21 years. But, you know, started doing the the Junior Series um, events, traveled to Bali on the South African team when I was eight years old, competing on the under-19s for the ISA World Games. So had a bit of experience traveling early on. And then, um, yeah, I was about 15 years old when um, I got the call from Barry Wallens at Quicksilver. And he was like, hey, Rose, I've, I've spoken to the other regions and um, the other regions of Quicksilver and Roxy, and we've got your spot in the wildcard trials at the Fiji Pro. And I was like, wait, like, wait, what? Like, and he's like, okay, what you got to do, go look up Fiji, order some bigger surfboards. <laughs> um, I grew up on right-hand point breaks. He's like, yeah, you're going to surf cloud break. And, um, and I just want to let you know, this is a huge investment for us to send you over there. And you need to go make an impression on people over in other offices at Quicksilver, because if you want to make this your reality and your dream, Quicksilver South Africa does not have the means to to send you to travel, to go to those events. So you've kind of got to make it happen, get connected with the, the, the people and uh, potentially sign a better contract that can see you reach that dream. No no pressure. How old were you when no, you got no this phone pressure. call? I was, I was 15. 15. But you know, <laughs> at, this, at the same time, I was like, wow, just to have someone first of all make a call to other regions that they believe in you so much that they want you in this wildcard trials to be blatantly honest with you to say like hey it's like we're gonna throw you out of the nest you're either gonna fly or you're gonna hit the ground it was that was good for me and I I traveled to Fiji by myself South Africa to Fiji is ages away like (laughs) direct to Perth layover in Perth uh Sydney Perth, Sydney, and then you get the flight to Nadi and then you, you overnight at the 
at a hotel. Um, I didn't know a single person. The two South Africans were Pierre Tasty and Heather Clark, um, but I'd never spoken to them ever. Um, so I just like, and I, like, I don't think people know, but I'm, I'm extremely shy. Like, like really, like it takes a lot for me to like, be like, okay, like go say hi, like go introduce yourself, like just, just make it happen. So that was like, it was a cool experience and, and I owe a lot of gratitude to Barry Wallens for just being like, you're, you're out on your own, like go get it done. So from that experience, um, competing against the world's best in Fiji, what were the steps that you had to take to qualify for the tour in 2007? Um, so from Fiji, that event, I actually secured like a one-year deal with, um, with Roxy International. And they're like, right, we're going to send you. You get to come to Fiji again. I was elated because I got to Tabaru and I was like, this, this place is paradise. <laughs> um, and then I went to um, Hawaii at the end of that year because the contest at Haleiwa was a Roxy event. So I got to see like Sofia Milanovic win a world title. And then at that end of that year on that contract, they, they ended up re-signing me for another three years. So I basically got to travel a little bit, but my focus was, hey, I want to, I want to finish up school. I want to finish up high school. And once I matric- matriculate, I'll be ready to kind of um, chase this, this dream of mine. So um, ended up matriculating in 2005. Uh, went on the QS in 2006 full-time and ended up qualifying that year. We've talked to a lot of surfers about this and and you've obviously experienced and you get to see it year over year, but just the, the almost, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't get the due or the credit it's due, the gap in terms of performance and speed and strength between the QS and the CT is so vast on the men's and women's side. What, what was it like? You had a couple wild cards, so you'd had a taste of it, but just you're a full-fledged rookie on the CT. You're surfing against the world's best in every heat. What is that like for, for a young surfer having to do battle in those kind of conditions? Yeah, it's <laughs> that uh, it's it's so, I mean, I honestly didn't expect to qualify so quickly. So for that to happen, I was like, okay, wow. Like I've got to hit the ground running here. Like I've got the short amount of time in the off season from when I got home from Hawaii to hitting the road in, in February for Snapper. So I actually got home and, and I was really happy and kind of ordering surfboards and, and doing that whole bit. And I actually had like a rut in my surfing. I was just like, I just had like a lot of self-doubt, a lot of anxiety by the time I got to go to, uh, by the time I got to go to Snapper and surf in that first event, it was really that kind of mental thing that I had to overcome. Sorry, my dog's barking. <laughs> he always does that just at the right time. He's going to come in and. <laughs> oh, is it your, is it your dog? Oh yeah. It's oh, I my, thought it was, I thought it was Zoe. Zoe's upstairs. She sounds exactly like Mac. <laughs> <laughs> So being on the CT, you were on there for four years. What would you say were kind of the, the high marks um, for you in terms of results or just performance against the world's best? Yeah, I mean, and just back to kind of what I was saying earlier too, I think, you know, that eye-opening experience and that rookie year on tour, I remember getting into Australia, uh, flying to Sydney and ended up buying an 89 Holden station wagon. <laughs> and putting a bed in it and, and calling that home for about a month. My, my boyfriend and I, we kind of went up the coast, stopped in Angauri, stopped at Lennox Head, finally made it to Snapper, 
walked into the competitors area the one day and uh, Sean Thompson came up to me and he's like, ah, I heard you living in your car. <laughs> I was like, in my mind, I was like, we're, we're camping, we're stoked, like this is awesome. And, and he, they, he was just like, you know what, at this level, like you need to make sure that you're taking better care of yourself. You've got a roof over your head. You, you just more, more set up in this and, and taking it a bit more seriously. So that was a hard point. Sean Thompson. Being, <laughs> Tell was telling like, you to move out of your car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, you know, the hard points for me, I had a lot of disappointments. I think the hard points, you know, was like semifinal finishes on Maui and, and just being a part of that whole tour. But I think a lot of the moments weren't really so much uh, the results and more just where things that I'd worked on coming, coming good for me and, and, and stuff happening and experiences that I had along the way. You know, there's always been, I've noticed like a huge gap on tour on the men's and the women's side. Um, kind of what you're talking about where there are some surfers that kind of have everything kind of handled, you know, they've got the biggest contracts, they've got coaches and trainers and they fly up in the pointy end of the plane and, um, you know, they've got dietitians and kind of all, you can see the value in it because some of them are like, oh, I got to focus on surfing. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who are just like, yeah, I've got to figure out all my own stuff. I don't have a manager. I don't have, I got to, I got to find cheap flights. I might have to kind of like fly a bunch of times to get to a place. I might be camping and it's a radical, I, I, I mean, I'm not familiar with other sports, but like it's a, it just seems like it's a radical range of, of experience for surfers all competing on the world tour. Yeah, I did. I did a lot of it on my own and now I kind of laugh because you see everyone, they've got their coach, they're bringing their family, they've got, uh, you know, nothing short of a Michelin starred chef like on the road with them. And that is incredible. And to see where it's at and the level of uh, professionalism is, is, is amazing. But I learned so much and it was so character building for me to be like booking my own flights, finding my own accommodation, like just being scrappy and a lot of the times I was also really frugal and I, I'm so thankful for that. I was able to save money and, and invest in other areas and that's paid off for me. I was also negotiating all of my contracts. So like walking in and just like walking through that business side of things, that taught me so much. And I even say like now I'm like, hey, if when you put someone on your team or, or if you're a team rider, it should almost be mandatory that you go into the office of where you sponsored and spend a couple of days like walking through the process of what it takes to run a surf brand and, and really appreciate it from that level. Because uh, when I signed with Roxy later on, one of the things I had to do was uh, part of my contract was go into the French office and, and work a couple hours. And that was a great experience for me. So, yeah, I think, you know, there is, <laughs> there is like that kind of, disparity between the people that just have it on like on lock they got people booking their flights they got like everyone going with them and you also see that in their level too like their sole goal is to improve their surfing win world titles win events and for me I, I never experienced any of that but I've gained a wealth of knowledge and and a set of skills other than that but I mean winning events and world titles that's like the upper echelon and that's like something we aspire to 
Yeah, but I mean, I think you can't overvalue the well-roundedness of what you're talking about, right? And maybe we should change the WSL rules. Like maybe every CT surfer has to spend like two weeks packing boxes for their sponsor or for us yeah. or something. I, I mean, I, I think there's a genuine value in that because what you end up getting a lot of times in any sport is such a hyper-specific like world champion that doesn't really have a ton of relatable experience to anyone around them, um, which is not great. I don't think we're kind of in that space now in surfing, but I think the more we can avoid that, the better. You talked about how you were scrappy. And when you were talking about early on about, you know, I got, I got to go to Fiji, I got to go to Hawaii. I had a one-year deal with Roxy and I kind of parlayed that into a three-year deal with Roxy. Like you're really gambling on yourself in, in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> I mean, I know you said you're going to school, but it reminds me a little bit of the story of you getting into commentating after after you were done with the CT in, in 2010. Can you can you talk about that a little bit for us? Because I think it's a it's a really cool story, and you kind of just bet on yourself again and and just went with it. Yeah, it was um, it was another one of those opportunities that presented itself, and and it's something you know that you have to explore. And it made me uncomfortable the thought of standing in front of a camera, and and like I said, I'm super shy, sensitive, and um, and all of these surfers are my heroes, so that I was hesitant to take the opportunity. But I was uh, the end of the 2010 season. I had just fallen off tour and kind of really reflecting on, on what I wanted to do and, and whether I wanted to get back on the QS the next year. And I was in Hawaii because um, I would spend, you know, a few months in Hawaii at the end of the year. And Kate Bain, who's now our production manager on the WSL, she was in Hawaii and she bumped into me on the beach at Rocky Point and she was like, hey, the Roxy Pro is coming up. Um, would you like to come and commentate? And I'd actually had a couple calls like in, in uh, previous years, uh, PNS and Mark Warren, who was uh, part of the production team at Quicksilver. They had asked me to come to the Quicksilver Pro in France a few times. Um, and I was always like, oh, I don't know if I, I could handle that. And I had nothing to lose by the end of 2010 going into 2011. So I was like, sure, I'll come, I'll come give it a shot at the, at the Quicksilver Pro, Roxy Pro at Snapper. And then that kind of in turn led me to um, Ripco asking me to do Bells Beach. And then at the end of Bells Beach, I got asked to do Margaret River. So I was just like, kind of went on this magic run of doing the whole Australian leg without really competing. What's more stressful for you, commentating or competing? Oh, I mean, it, it just depends on the situation. I mean, some some moments when you're commentating, you're like, oh, it's like it's it's almost like a shot of adrenaline because <laughs> you're just like uh, going head on with it. But competing for me, it was, you know, it's such an emotional roller coaster. And I think people don't give that enough thought sometimes is just how uh, taxing competing can be and when you're up and you're winning, it's awesome. And, and when you've got, you're suffering those tough losses and that's uh, really, were really tricky. Did you ever receive any training for what you do in the booth or what you do in your post-heat interviews, any formal training? I mean, yeah, just like everyone in the water going, hey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, um, it, it was funny. We didn't, you know, you have people that I, I really respect, like the people that I've kind of, um, worked with along the way uh, and getting bits of advice from everyone. And I'm always really open to to their suggestions and, and hearing their feedback. But no, like, real formal yeah. kind of background. Have there been any moments in your commentating career that, that stick out to you as particularly memorable where you're like, maybe at the end of it, you're like, I feel like I'm, I feel like I've grown into this role better now that I've done this thing. 
Yeah, I think the, the, the mentality for us commentators is we have such an amazing gig and we owe it to our sport, we owe it to people watching to improve and, and really do our homework and invest ourselves in trying to get better at what we do. So I think I'm, I'm always kind of striving to do a lot better. Like even looking back on the heat that you guys sent through yesterday or looking back at some of the WSL rewinds, I'm just like, oh, cringe, like, come on, Rosie, like, <laughs> just string a sentence together, girl. But, yeah, I think it's it's just important to, to always be looking back and trying to improve. And I think at the end of the season when you crown world champs and, and you have that adrenaline running through you and you're feeling that energy on the beach, those are those moments that you really, you just reflect on and, and love and love what you do. Well, I mean, from the from the start to the present day, I, you know, you've had an amazing career and, and super duper diverse in the surfing world. And, and it's, it's particularly interesting given, given, you know, the surfing world's relationship to women in, in a lot of ways. Um, but before we get to other aspects of your post CT career, we're going to take a quick break and get a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However, you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So Rosie, you were quoted as saying the following in regards to, I think kind of around like the surfing world's marketing of women, you said, I love seeing brands market their athletes with depth. There are some people that are obviously easy to market because of the way they look, but also the story they have behind their success. I want to be inspired by the hard work, grace, and courage they carry themselves with and connect them, connect with them in a way that makes me want to see them be successful and inspire to push myself to do better. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? Because I think it's such a great point and, and because of your background, in surfing and with sponsorship, I think you're particularly well positioned to comment on it. Yeah. I mean, there's so much more to just what people see and what they perceive of people. And I think everyone's got, you know, everyone's got such a great story. There's so much like depth behind, you know, what people have gone through, like what their lives are like, like where they've grown up. And I think to me, that tapestry that makes people who they are is so interesting. And for that story to be told, I think there's kind of, it's transient to see someone that's that's marketed for maybe the way that they look or or however it goes. And, you know, that's like, you know, a dime a dozen. You can kind of roll through that. But when you look back and I look at the people that have inspired me, it's kind of it hasn't just been about, you know, the their appearance. It's been about just seeing the challenges that they've overcome seeing, you know, what they've brought and, and how they've inspired and, and, and the kind of um, richness that they've brought to our sport. So that is always the intriguing thing for me. And especially being on the other side of it now as a commentator, like I'm so invested in 
in the stories of the athletes and, and that human interest of, of finding out more about people. For sure. And, and I mean, the surfing world has, has totally wrestled with what to do with men versus women throughout the course of its probably like um, history. Um, we've had a lot of surfers come on and they've talked about this clear distinction between, you know, men and women and what they have to deal with from their sponsors in terms of body image or anything like that. And essentially for, for women, it is almost always something they have to consider, always a conversation they've had with their sponsors. I have not heard one male talk about it yet, which is disgusting. Yeah. Isn't it? It's, it's crazy. Is that something that you, you had at any stage of your career, like having these conversations? And, and what did, if so, what did you take away from it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an experience as a woman. I mean, you get this pressure and like you mentioned the brands, the sponsors, there's a certain way that they want you to look, a certain way they want you to act. And there's like that society pressure. And I think, I mean, yeah, for sure, I've felt that. And I've also like had things said to me and, and you just like, wait, like you look back on it and you're just like, I get my back up. Like, <laughs> I'm just like, no, like I'm stubborn. And I'm just like, no, 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 no. That's, that's like, I've heard stories of other people too. And I'm just like, wait, like, that doesn't like, that's not like you are an incredible human accomplishing amazing things. That side of it, that shouldn't even come into our kind of mindset um, of, 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 and it shouldn't take away from anything that you do and achieve. That's why I thought that, that comment from you that I read before is so impactful because you said it a few years ago and it feels like now more than ever, like brands are being held accountable to empower substance more than style in a lot of ways. And I think that's part and parcel, you know, the information age, right? Where it's like people demand more information or expect more information and expect story and expect depth from, from surfers. And I, hopefully we're seeing that, you know, in, in reflected in the contracts. I mean, I think from my perspective, at least on, on, the tours, um, specifically on the women's side, I think all the women on tour are so amazing and have such amazing stories. And I think the ones battling for the world titles, and I think um, they all have amazing stories. And it feels like they're being, I won't say compensated accordingly, because I think there's still a huge gap between men's and women's sponsorship, but it feels like more of the support is coming into, you know, so substance and story and performance as opposed to in the past. Yeah, and it's it roughly so, and, and I agree with you. There's, I think people aren't fooled by that anymore. You know, you can, it's, it's people do want to see that depth and, and see people. I think, you know, there's maybe a lot of talent too. When I was on tour, that was almost buried because they never got the opportunity. They never got the sponsor dollars to like get on that stage and, and get to compete. And even though they were amazingly talented, they never really got to reach that full potential because they weren't getting that support system behind them. And then on top of that, you also have like, as a young woman trying to achieve, achieve that goal, you know, that like, it's, it's, it's hard when you have that expectation. And if it's just not you and it's, it, you have this goal and it's not you and you're like working towards something else and you don't get that support, it's, it can be really heartbreaking and hard to work through. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, I mean, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of social media or the current status of the information age, but I do think that's one of the benefits is it's there's no daylight between who you project yourself to be and who you really are, or there's less. So you, you kind of have to be authentic um, in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, there's such a huge call for to for people to see that authentic side of you and to be genuine. And I think it shouldn't even be a question. I mean, when you're living authentically or you're genuine, then it's just that, that role that you fall in. You're not really giving uh, any of your energy or your time or, or your thought into into doing it any other way. For sure. And I mean, I think like, you know, your story and your experiences and your fights and those of the people and your contemporaries that you came up with have really paved the way for this to happen in such a significant way. And now all your work in the commentator uh, commentary booth and, you know, just you existing, as we said, is really arguably one of the most, if not the most prominent voice in, in surfing, women's voice in surfing. And now for this week's uh, segment of the review presented by BF Goodrich, um, you know, fans might typically hear you commentate on the women's tour um, in the booth, but, you know, your bona fides and your insights are gender agnostic. So for this week's review, we're going to tap into your knowledge for the 2017 J-Bay clash between Jordy Smith and Connor Coffin. All right. So round five resurf uh, between Jordy Smith and Connor Coffin. We get to start with rule 16605. So that's exciting. Um, I wasn't here, but... This was from the morning. The judges' angle had missed part of Connor's barrel. They went and reviewed footage from, I think, Ryan Perry and determined that, yeah, we have to do a resurf, which really never happens. But it had, this was Jordy's second resurf of the event. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Jordy had to have a resurf in his Felipe Toledo heat, and Jordy just starting this heat. So think about that. He surfed, this is his third heat this day. He did the resurf with, um, with Felipe in the morning and, and Julian Wilson. Then he met up with Connor. Then it was revised. They said, nope, uh, Connor, uh, you know, obviously missed a wave. So the judges had to kind of call a resurf. So this is Jordy's third surf this day. And they actually called the quarterfinals on for later in the day. So Jordy <laughs> was going to surf four times. And I mean, you tell from that body language that he was fired up. He looks emotional. Yeah, Connor Coffin, I was actually surfing lows with him yesterday and he is just so incredibly nice. You see him getting barreled on this section. So, um, you know, a kind of blessing in disguise to have these guys surf against each other again because the waves were so freaking good. I mean, it's just pumping. Well, I, I love gonna... the emotion from Connor too. Like this heat like meant a lot to both of these guys. Yeah, because I, I looked it up too. And so this was Jordy's, blew me away. It was his 10th season on tour in 2017, which is psycho, because it seems like a long time. And it was Connor's second. And I think Connor at this stage, he had a lot of success his rookie season, but at this point in the year, he was still struggling to requalify. Um, so as you said, this this heat meant a lot. And both of them, you know, world renowned for, for surfing J-Bay really, really well, whether it's through competition or kind of through free surfing edits. Yeah, I think later in this heat, um, Sean Thompson actually calls Connor a keg on legs. So he's just like, <laughs> he's so powerful. And I love his, just his lower body and how compact he is and the way that he's able to really lean into these maneuvers. I think Jeffrey's Bay's uh, super tubes in particular, it's just all about that timing, right? And if you kind of mess up the beginning part of the wave and you don't draw a good line and you get kind of behind on, on what you want to do on the wave, it, it really messes up everything. Where Connor just reads it so beautifully, I think he also, he filmed a, a, a movie project in Jeffrey's Bay a few years prior. So he'd had a lot of experience out at SuperTube. So it's just, uh, it's so, it's such a thing of beauty to see such an incredible surfer on this wave. And it really just highlights everyone else's flaws at surfing this wave because <laughs> 
you get so stuck in the moment at JV of just wanting to go fast and go down the line and kick out and realize you haven't done a single maneuver. Well, and I think that's such a big takeaway is like, and, and another thing that doesn't necessarily translate for the fans is like, it's such a huge, fast canvas that any one of these maneuvers with Jordy up on the replay now could be mistimed. Like you could literally screw up every maneuver in every section and you mistime it for 200, 300 yards. And so someone like Jordy doing what he's doing here, timing wise, is so impressive. I mean, even that little takeoff in the stall and, and that anticipation of what the, the wall's going to do further down the line. I mean, there's no better feeling than kind of getting that soft roll in at J Bay and then just hitting that inside section where it's drawing off the rocks and, and seeing that long wall in front of you and recognizing the fact that you've timed it perfectly. You've placed that first maneuver in that, in that critical zone. It's really set you up to slingshot you down the line and just tear into the face of the wave. And another thing to note, for Jordy competing at Jeffreys Bay, there is just so much energy. So many people migrate to Jeffreys Bay to come and watch Jordy compete and really put their energy, their time, their support, their love and pride into what Jordy's doing. Now, is that something unique to Jordy? Or is that is that like with Greg Emsley or, you know, Sean Holmes when he had the wild cards or Trav Logie? Did, do people turn up for them too? Oh, 100%. Like the migration to Jeffrey's Bay for, for this event is, it's it's like Ocavango level. Like you are just seeing like everyone from Cape Town, Durban, everyone's making that pilgrimage, bringing their children. And I remember, I mean, back in like 1998, I mean, there are people on screen right now, you can see the crowd. Um, but back in 98, um, I actually wasn't at the event, but a friend coming home and telling me about a young 13-year-old named Sofia Milanovic. Um, who was the wild card in that event. And it's like for everyone to witness this happen in front of them and the inspiration that they draw from it, it's, uh, I mean, Jordy speaks about it, his getting inspiration from those, those guys. Sean Holmes, I mean, he beat, what, Andy Irons three times as a wild card? Yeah, big, big time. I, was, I'm a, I remain a big Andy guy, and it was a big deal in my life when Sean Holmes kept beating him. Was, <laughs> oh, yeah, for me as a Who's South African, guy? I was, yeah, like I was like all proud. Like, yeah, we back our surfers. Like Mikey Feb getting the wild card and then surfing um, at the elite level when he qualified. Dale Staples, I think, was in this event as the wild card. Greg Emsley, when he's out surfing, you can, it's just like mayhem. So with Jordy, he grew up in Durban. You guys are about the same age. When did you first encounter Jordy Smith in your life? So the first time I met Jordy was probably at the South African Junior Champs back in like 1995, maybe 96. I was competing in the under 10 boys division and he was surfing in the under eight boys division. And um, wow, I was, he was just so talented. And it was, it was almost kind of funny because the other boys were almost jealous of Jordy because that's how good he was. Well, I was going to ask if he was someone from a very, very young age that people were like, he was going to be something special or if he kind of grew into it. You know, I I had a similar conversation about Gabrielle um, with Pinga and Pinga, you know, is notoriously one of the, the best scouts in Brazil. He always identifies the right talent. And I asked him, what happened with Gabrielle? He's like, he was good. He just wasn't beating everybody. Like he developed into that later in life and now he's sort of a Terminator. Um, but was it was it apparent from the start with someone like Jordy? Yeah, Jordy was unbelievable. And he was so ahead too. I remember going to junior events and he was doing air, like air reverses and stuff. And they didn't know how to judge it. You know, it was like, well, is that a trick or is it a maneuver? Like, how does this fit into um, that scale? So 
he was really pushing the envelope um, in the junior series and, and, and really um, also asking more from the judges for the stuff that he was doing. And you, you mentioned, you just dropped a little kernel there. You were competing in the boys division as well. So what, what was like, what was that like for you? I mean, I, I would imagine it was just, there just weren't women's divisions at the time. Uh, yeah, the women's division was just so much like high. I think it was like an under 18 division. Right. And I was, I was like, I think I was eight competing in the under 10 boys division. And I'll tell you, there's no better feeling than beating boys in their own division. So I ended up making the final of, of that um, South African champs. Um, Damien Farrenfort won, and he'll tell you that he was pretty scared that I might beat him for the, the backlash <laughs> that he was going to feel from the rest of the boys. How often did you get to surf J-Bay, being from East London? Um, I surfed it quite a bit, and I remember my first surf at Super Tubes because you had to kind of work your way um, you know, you start down at Albatross, which is kind of the beach break or kitchen windows, a beach break up and you kind of go, then you get to kind of graduate and, and surf the point. And then, you know, when you are ready, you get to go out at Super Tube. So I remember my first surf there, I actually was camping with uh, the Bryson family, Royden and Bryson, who spent a number of years on the championship tour. Um, they they took me on my first surf experience at, at Super Tubes and, and to Jeff and to Jeffrey's Bay. So those are like super vivid special memories for me. We've got Sean Thompson up on camera right now. Um, you know, my experience with Sean, he's always so composed and he's so articulate. You know, growing up in South Africa, can you describe how Sean was kind of perceived by the surfing community when you were growing up? Yeah, he was an idol. I mean, one of the first world champs and, and just his impact and, and his legacy. Um, you know, I used to get Spider Murphy surfboards. Uh, he was one of the best shapers in South Africa and one of the early supporters of me and um, absolutely loved those guys. But they, you know, had a lot of experience shaping for Sean Thompson. So they'd have like the boards hanging up in the, in the, um, in the factory in the shaping bay and you'd be like, that's Sean Thompson's board. And you'd just be like, mind-blown grommet that like the world champ had had surfed that board and Sean actually spent a lot of time like he I remember when I was on the South African squad he had signed a bunch of his books to all the juniors on the team and like given us a note of encouragement so he's just always been someone that I look up to. So both these guys had really high scores at the start Jordy with a 937 and Connor with an 867 and if I'm not mistaken Jordy really hammers one home right now you want to walk us through this wave yeah so Jordy rolling in on this wave kind of takes his time looking down the line gets that sweeping arc I love that cutback and then the way that he's just able to time that bottom turn so he really gets it crispy up in that lip and stays critical beautiful bottom turn that sets him up for another arc times this maneuver up into the lip just so much spray Jordy's just such a powerful surfer lays that back arm down and that's the leg burn factor too. I mean, every one of those maneuvers, you're exerting so much energy. Jordy, another swoop, bottom turn, Oof. makes connection with that lip. It's just so beautiful. Like every arcing maneuver, every drop of water is just in its place. He gets a little bit of a shampoo at the end and does the big man claim. It, and yeah. it's such a physically taxing wave, even just standing there, let alone doing everything <laughs> that he's doing for as long as he's doing it. Um, and as you said, this is already the third time he's had to perform today. He had the resurf uh, for his round four heat to start the day. He surfed against Connor in the original round five bout, and now he's back in there. So it's just, I, I mean, 
for someone of his size and and power and strength, like it, it really is essential to being able to surf that well for that long. Yeah, and I, it was. I mean, 2017 was this the the new improved Jordy when he went on the big fitness regime and just like <laughs> kind of really finally tuned his his whole game. But yeah, I mean, he that fitness and and also the emotional aspect. I mean. They had to finish out this round before they kind of reviewed the tape and made that decision to have the resurf. So there was a lot of like energy and mental kind of stuff going on in the background for this decision to be made. Well, since we've had the quarantine going, we've been doing those WSL vault shows every Monday where we play like a highlight show from the Audis and I can't remember when it was, but we were rewatching the 2010 Santa Catarina one and Jordy's like interviewed quite a lot in it. <laughs> He's just like, I haven't been training at all. I'm not doing anything at all. <laughs> just like, all right, like it's an approach. And he qualified in 2008. And I'm sure you remember, I'm sure it was a huge deal in South Africa. It was a huge deal in the surfing world because he had left his longtime sponsor, um, Billabong. He had that season or, or, or several months where he didn't have a sponsor. There was a huge bidding war for him. He was putting out these edits. He was essentially arrived on tour for the, fir- the first guy in a long time that was like, I'm here to win a world title in year one. Like he had so much confidence and talent. And uh, w- what was it like for you um, being a fellow South African and kind of watching that whole trajectory of him in, in the 2008 years? Oh, incredibly proud. Like so proud of Jordi. It's ridiculous. And then I don't know if you remember, um, I think it was one of Kelly's world title acceptance speech at the w- ASP WSL Awards when he actually like, like picked Jordi out of the crowd and said, I'm expecting Jordi to win a world title. Do you remember that? I do, but I, he did that. He did that a lot. Like he loved to. (laughs) So, so here's my two cents on Kelly. Like if he was doing that, he didn't actually consider Jordi a threat on the day. Mm -hmm. Like I remember like he did that with Dane Reynolds after he won bells one time, he like gave a victory speech and he's like, you know, Dane's the best surfer in the world or something. And like Mick and Parko's brains exploded because they're like, what the (laughs) <laughs> and like, and the, for Dane, he was like, I'm not challenging Kelly for a world title, but I think he does that. I think he's like, I'm going to put the spotlight over Cat on this guy to like mess with my actual contenders over here. He's <laughs> always 10 steps ahead. Oh, God. No, but I definitely remember just being super proud of Jordi and, and also seeing, I mean, that hard work, like I said, coming from South Africa, it it's not, I mean, you talk about the bidding wars and all of that stuff for him to get to that point though, he really had to make that happen for himself. It was all like self-made. No one was like, it, you know, sometimes you see Grams that are like sponsored up to the teeth yeah. and they have these huge expectations. Jordy, we had a lot of expectation, a lot of hope for him, but he had to really forge his way and, and put in the hard yards to see him get that trajectory and to make that happen for himself. It's just like, it's something that needs to inspire more South Africans to get to that level. That's such a good point. I, I think, you know, I I was talking to someone about this recently on the podcast, just about growing up in Orange County and seeing how many people were able to get sponsored um, that were good surfers, but then going on tour and traveling around and just seeing how amazing some surfers were that didn't have any sponsors just because they weren't that close to the industry. So I think it's like a great point about, you know, you just have to work that much harder from South Africa. Definitely. And I think um, in South Africa, sport like has just has unified our nation on so many ways. I mean, you look back at the 95 Rugby World Cup, I mean, just winning that as newly elected Nelson Mandela, like the new South Africa was coming into effect and, and that impact. And then 
even last year, uh, the South African Springboks won the Rugby World Cup again. And that really, you know, we we take it seriously. Like there's a lot of pride in that and, and to see Geordie and, and to be at that level and, and how that can uplift like a lot of people in the nation is so important. For sure. So you're talking to Glenn Micro Hall here. Um, when you're when you're on the tools, when you're doing your job, <laughs> how does that work when you're trying to identify people to speak to? I mean, it's just it's got to be relevant, right? And it's really filling in the gaps of the story because Micro obviously was a big part in in this research happening. Like going, he's obviously working with Connor Coffin and really pushing um, for this research to happen. So, and then at the end of the day, he's got to get his athlete in the mindset to go out and compete and, and, and forget about what had happened previously. For sure. And then Connor's back up and riding here. He's fighting. You and Connor both ride for Rip Curl now. You signed with Rip Curl at the end of 2016. And you mentioned surfing with him at Lowers uh, yesterday. I think I surfed with him at Silverstrand two days ago. So he's getting around. Do you get to spend a lot of time with Connor outside of the tour? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's that when you have that familiarity of, of being on the same team. I think Connor, my mom actually said it from the time he was a rookie, but Connor's actually one of my mom's favorite surfers. And I really like Connor, like interviewing him and interacting with him on the WSL. Um, and even just surfing with him is super fun. But um, from a Ripco standpoint, we do a lot of signings, a lot of like, rip call events together so it's always cool to bump into him he's a super nice guy if you had to predict the so so when when competition returns here oh actually first walk us through connor's replay here because i want to get your insights well connor i mean you know jordy's just dropped the hammer of the 10 point rod coupled with his 9.33 so connor's getting up on this thing and he is like he's pissed like he wants he wants it back he wants to get his head back in the game and every single one of these maneuvers, I mean, we spoke about that timing and, and just the way that he approached this wave, I think that aggression, but he didn't like, he didn't overpower the wave in a way that like looked kind of funky. It mm. just was a really well-run wave, maybe a bit smaller than than what we saw from Jordy. And that's maybe where, you know, the kind of the, the scores kind of differ. But I think, I think Connor gets a really good score on that one. We had a rear view a few weeks ago with... Kanoe Garashi, I can't remember from what year it was, but we were watching J-Bay, and it was the year that um, Griffin was a rookie, and, you know, Griffin Colapinto is such a talent, he's so strong, but it, the lack of experience out at J-Bay showed, you know, because he was able to kind of perform on the wave, but the timing wasn't there because he didn't have the experience, and that's what I'm so struck by watching Connor here because he's only a sophomore on tour at this stage, but he just has the timing down so well. I'm sure that's from you know, as you mentioned, like his free surf trips, there just to surf and his background, uh, being able to grow up surfing Rincon. I, I mean, out of all the waves on tour, do you think the experience and just time in the water um, at J-Bay is, is more important than the other ones? It, it's so crucial. Well, in, in all honesty, you can see people that have spent more time at specific lineups and really put the work in to learn the different indicators of the place. And, and it pays off so much. And there's only one way to do that, and that's it's spent a lot. Wow, that maneuver from Johnny was ridiculous. Um, but there's only one way, the two-turn combo. I mean, just that massive tail slide and then that attack of the lip. But there's only one way to do that. That's time in the water. That's really like paying your dues, speaking to locals. And, and I think Carissa did that so well. She got one of the locals in South Africa to um, help her at Jeffrey's Bay this last year where she was able to win the event it's such a huge advantage to go and, and put the time in and really learn the wave. For sure. 
The uh, so Jordy's up here. He's got he's got a ten and a nine three seven. I think that last wave you see him really push the first turn because at this point he's like I got a better a nine three seven. I pretty much if I'm going up on a wave here, I'm going as hard as I can. But Jesus, his equipment looks really good in this in this heat too. I mean, it's, it's really sharp. He's someone who, in my experience, he's used a, a lot of different shapers over the course of his career, and he's someone who. I remember from his first event on tour at Snapper Rocks, he had so many boards. Like he was, again, like the hot prospect. I think he had like over 50 boards. I've heard I, um, just from different shapers that wanted to get him boards. And I remember thinking like, man, I, I think I'd have like selection paralysis if that was yeah. happening. <laughs> Lucky for Geordie. I mean, his dad's a shaper, Graham Smith. So he's got a good grasp on on what's happening when it comes to equipment. So I think he could... You know, they're those people that pick up a board and instantly put it under their arm, feel it, and know what how it's going to work. I mean, I wonder what he's on here, like a Tucker Grand or a Rook 15, or I know it's an Almeric. He was still on the Almerics at that stage? I think stage. he's on the Almerics at that stage. But even for yourself, like you mentioned Spider Murphy. You rode for Spider Murphy. I think you rode for DH, CI, and now Firewire. You know, how would you rate your own kind of like board intelligence? Like, are you someone that really gets into the details or you just like just give me something that works because I've, I've noticed the ct surfers are either kind of one or the other like they know everything about board design or they're just like i don't want to know just give me something that works yeah it's um it's i i think i'm like kind of on that other kind of spectrum i came out of the garage the other day because i wanted to change fins in my surfboard and i just held up a couple sets to my husband and i was like you need to help me <laughs> like <laughs> Because, yeah, I, I think um, a lot of the time at this moment in my life, I'm kind of just stoked on whatever I get. I ride a lot of twin fins and um, like quad fin five, two, five, three boards. But back back then, I, I think I should have spent a lot more time really familiarizing myself with equipment and learning those intricacies because I think that would have been so beneficial to my career if I just spent that time going over that stuff and, and really dialing in my quiver and maybe even not being afraid to experiment on, on different kinds of things. So I think, yeah, you mentioned there's either one or the other. I think I was just a little bit on that other side of, of being a bit ignorant. Now you made it to the elite level of championship tour competition and other South Africans in recent years, um, or maybe not so recent years, you know, Wendy Boita, Greg Emsley, Travlogi, Davey Weir, Royden Bryson, Jordy, Bianca Batendog, Mikey uh, February, but it's not a huge amount of surfers for for the region. You know, the region's got such good waves and such amazing surfers. We've got Matthew McGillivray uh, coming in as a rookie when competition resumes. I know we talked about how because it's so far away from everything, it's that much harder for people to break through. Are you still very connected to the surfing community in South Africa? And, and if so, who do you kind of see coming up on the men's and women's side um, next from the country? You know what, I'm actually a little bit like ashamed to say that I, I I keep an eye on it a little bit, but I think I could definitely spend a bit more time being more connected. And looking back at when we were younger, I think, you know, a lot of of what we experienced and the success of seeing like, you know, in quick succession, a lot of South Africans on tour was the fact that we had a lot of junior events. Like there was like just the opportunity to surf in a lot of events get your head wrapped around competing. There was a lot of talent. So that just festered and created like this very competitive atmosphere. So people improved really quickly. They also like got to set goals for themselves because they realized, hey, this is what I want to make my career. So I think 
that was that was crucial. Yeah, and we've noticed it. Like I think strong domestic tours really breed great talent. You know, I think when surfers from a young age feel like they have to travel internationally, and you kind of have that dilution of talent in the same space at the same time, it's harder, right? So if you have a really strong domestic tour and you get surfers that are growing up and matriculating through that tour and pushing each other, they, they kind of come out the other side. And when they do hit the international stage on the QS, they're that much better. A hundred percent. I mean, it just fosters that talent. There's that, um, you know, infrastructure for them to, to learn the framework of what it's going to take to compete. And it gets so cutthroat when you're that young competing and you uh, identify, you know, your opponents and you just create like this competitive nature for yourself and, and really just can envision yourself getting to, you know, the stepping stones of getting on the QS, then like like qualifying for the Challenger Series, getting to surf the, the bigger events and hopefully getting onto the championship tour one day. Who were some of the other young South African women when you were coming up? You mentioned you identify your competitors and, and you you take from them and, and drive yourself. Like who were some of the other ones that you were facing when you were coming up? Well, I mean, uh, Nikita Rob was someone that spent years on the championship tour. We had, I mean, there was such a good crew of women when I was competing, um, younger generations, and it was super competitive, like crazy competitive. Like we'd be staying at someone's house and if if I won an event, you know, those people wouldn't speak to me for like a couple of days. It was just like, it was crazy. There was a lot of things that I was like, okay, that's, uh, that's a bit weird, but we'll, we'll roll with it. But it was cool. Like there was like uh, Tammy Smith, Stacy Guy, um, Nikita Rob, like I mentioned, and then even seeing Bianca Batendach when she was just a grom and recognizing the talent in her. Connor at this stage, he's comboed. He's serving this wave so well. And I, I think one of the things that struck me when this one first came across the screen is he looks like he's intentionally trying to incorporate more variety in this as opposed to kind of just you know, time and carve and time and carve and his cards are so beautiful, but he's, he's going higher in the pocket. He's doing floaters. And I guess at this stage you, you kind of have to, right? Because you're, you're behind the clock. And that's one thing I touched on with Glenn Hall when I, when I spoke to him in that earlier interview, I said, Hey, Jordy, Connor, they have similar approaches. What do you think the point of difference is for Connor to get the edge on Jordy? And, and Glenn said, you know, he's going to bring a, a variety in his surfing. So I think that's something that he's intentionally implementing into his surfing. That's such a good thing to think about, too, because there's a lot of different ways you can get excellent scores on tour. And you kind of see people, some people are very power based and, and rail based, and some people are kind of more progressive and fin throwy. Jordy and Connor, in particular at this stage of both their careers, were, were, had kind of the power-based rail game going. Um, but then Jordy, too, um, going back to kind of the 2008 conversation, vanguard of progression. You know, he's able to do the Aries. He's able to do the uh, mixing it up. So, geez, yeah, I mean, it, you'd have a tall task with, with anybody coming up against Jordy in a heat like this because it's like, what is your point of difference and how are you going to get the judges to throw high scores at you? Yeah, and I think for Connor's approach too, when I watch him, like even though growing up on right-hand point breaks, he still seems pretty front-footed for a surfer. Because a lot of times you have, when you grow up on right-hand point break, it's it's got a lot more push and a lot more power, which means you can kind of lean back on that back foot and um, almost, it's like almost a, a lazier approach where Connor, like that front foot, he's pushing and exerting on that rail and really draws out every maneuver, which 
in, in my eyes, you know, that's almost harder to do, but it's something that he's been able to just like do so beautifully. For sure. We've got your uh, colleague Strider on camera here. You, um, up until very recently, have been the only woman on the WSL commentary team, but it seems like you guys do have a, a really good blend. And I think probably the gender ratio has really just been a function of, of really kind of the gender ratio in the surfing world um, for a long time, but it feels like that's changing. What, what, what's, your, what's your perspective on that? I, I love our whole crew. I mean, isn't it incredible that this would have been, 2020 would have been our seventh year of, of kind of the same individuals traveling together, like renting cars together, doing all that stuff. And I still like, I have so much love and appreciation for our whole crew. And it's been so fun just having that dynamic because as the only female, like everyone is really, I, I feel like protective over me. Like, I mean, Parks actually, he got a call from, from everyone like saying like, hey, like take care of Rosie because he's obviously got that Quicksilver connection. There was that Quicksilver connection back in the day. But, um, and he, he, you know, he brings it up. He was like, hey, I was told to look after you. And I was like, I know, like, um, I know that conversation happened and it was from the, the get-go. Potts, like, took me under his wing. He really took that position of taking care of me. All the guys on the commentary team take care of me. And it's really nice, too, to have, you know, a few more few more ladies on the commentary team to kind of interact with, too, though. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's a great balance um, that we want to strive for. But, like, what you're getting at, too, is... Oh, we'll stop real quick because here's a heat recap. Well, Jordy, I mean, to open up with a 933 is just, I mean, that's a feather in your cap from the judges too, because it's really hard with, to set the scale when the waves are this perfect to immediately give that upper echelon of a score and reward it. I mean, there's no denying that this was like up in that in that range. What was that? Yeah, that, that was, was a 933. 9-3-3, I think, for this first run. And then I think Connor ended up with an 8-6-7. Oh, my gosh. I mean... To have that timing, I mean, he goes so far up into that lip and just brings it back down. It's just like the intricacy of what he's doing too. I mean, this is all obviously a normal speed. When you really slow it down in those sections, it's just like so impressive. This little barrel in the end section. And these two are quite different in terms of height too. Like Jordy's probably six foot two in that space and Connor's probably in the five eight range, you know, and so that being able to compress and, and for Jordy and then being able to push and, and kind of physically dominate the way Connor is, it's really impressive on kind of both their sides. Definitely. I mean, they, we speak, we say that they've got similar approaches, but their contrasting styles are so evident. I mean, there's a lot of Parker-esque-ness to Jordy surfing on these long walls. And you can see like his lanky body in comparison to Connor who's just like so strong and he just absorbs. I mean, Connor never really fully extends his body. I feel like he's always like a spring. He's coiled up, ready to really attack and uh, um, kind of absorb anything that the wave's doing. Where Jordy is kind of lanky and fluid and, and that style sh uh, shines through. You mentioned this was the year that Jordy started taking his fitness seriously. What do you, what what insights do you have in, in that? Like, what was he doing? Was it diet? Was it yoga? What, what was he doing to kind of change his body type? And then, what I guess from your perspective was the goal? Um, you know, with your background, I think everyone on tour. I think if you're not putting in that hard work, you're going to fall way behind. And I think for Jordy, I mean, he came in with these expectations of winning a, a world title straight away. You kind of have that eye-opening moment where you're like, wow, it's a lot harder than I thought it was. 
What other aspects can I reach into to kind of level up and get to to that place? So I think it was for Jordi, it was like, hey, I'm, I'm going to start taking this even more seriously. I don't know. I don't think he drank alcohol for like over a year. I think he really just had a look at what he was putting in his body and, and kind of made some some serious life choices. Yeah. And I mean, and the results have, have shown big time. Jeffrey's Bay wasn't on tour um, when you were competing. And as you're there and you're commentating today, do you ever pause and think like I could to this day, I could perform here amongst the top 17? <laughs> I don't know. The level of the woman is just mind blowing. I mean, obviously, I'd love to be given the opportunity to have 35 minutes with no one out and like 12 jet skis in the lineup to keep us safe. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just look at the at the level nowadays and I have just such huge amounts of respect for, for what those women are doing. But and I'm just so, so happy to see the woman competing um, at Super Tubes. Maybe we can start a, um, uh, maybe the lineup, this episode, the lineup can spawn a put, <laughs> give Rosie the wild card into J-Bay. I mean, further Honestly, to that, I'm, like. I'd be embarrassed. Oh, I mean, <laughs> but then you, but then you wouldn't have to commentate. So you'd be like, well, I don't have to worry about that. Like, or maybe you'd oh, have to do they'd probably strap the watermark to, to me and be like, you, come on, double <laughs> duty on, on your back. But further to that, I mean, the quality of waves on tour these days, you know, Indonesia and Fiji in the past and Trestles in the past, do you think that your surfing in particular would have flourished a bit more with sort of higher quality waves? Um, I, I definitely think better waves bring about better surfing, that's for sure. Um, it's like, yeah, I look at the tour nowadays and it's just like with Maui and with Jeffrey's Bay, Snapper Rocks, like... Um, uh, Bell's Beach. I mean, you know, there's like a Karamas at G-Land. Are you kidding? Like there've been like so many spots implemented that just bring about the best surfing. So, I mean, it's easy to be like, yeah, definitely like 100%. <laughs> like if I, <laughs> the better waves, like I said, better surfing. Snap predictions for um, when competition resumes. What do you think is going to happen for Connor? What do you think is going to happen for Jordy? I mean, Connor is, wow. I mean, with the help of Glenn Hall and, and what he's been doing, he's had like such a great run in his career. I see him, you know, continuing on that stride. For Jordi, um, you know, it's always the hope that he's going to win a world title, right? And we wholeheartedly back back him. So I, I would just, he's, I mean, he's been in the mix with the world title conversation, but I, I want him to just, you know, just like, come on, guy, like break through. But then you think about like the Italos, the Gabbies, the Johns, um, and you're just like, wow, it's, it's intense. On the topic of world title contention, um, you know, the WSL recently announced some pretty significant directional changes to how they're going to be crowning the world title, how we're going to be crowning the world title starting in 2021, um, primarily moving away from, you know, a tour long rankings to the tour long rankings qualifying the world's best to a single day event where the world title would be decided in a single day at this event. You know, as someone who's been around the sport and culture of surfing your whole life, um, what are your unvarnished thoughts on this on this really significant change? Um, well, I mean, you think last year was like the perfect scenario with the world title being decided in the final at the Pipeline Masters with incredible conditions and you can't like think of a better sports moment I think I like what Britt Merrick said, like you want to almost see it and feel it. And I don't I don't know if the WSL's fleshed out all of the structure for it yet. So I would want to see, you know, how does it work? Because I think 
I mean, we're seeing like that cream rise to the top at the end of the season, the past few seasons, right? And, you know, seeing those guys go head to head when you know how consistent they've been, that's a special thing. And to give them that platform where it's it's just you guys, like you guys are going into the gladiator pit and one person is going to emerge victorious. That is like, that's all you want to see in sports. So I think I want to see it. I want to see the structure and kind of wrap my head around how it's going to work. We put it out to the Instagram community to see if anyone had questions for you. And uh, they definitely did. Um, so we got three questions from Instagram. Pretty from the sea asks, if you had to pick one fellow WSL commentator to be stuck with for an entire year, who would you pick and why? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I would like pick different parts of everyone's personality. Um, I mean, Joe or Ronnie. Ronnie's just so funny. He'd be super entertaining. Joey's just always been awesome. I love them all, but... You don't have to see them for a few months. You can you can go with Joe and Ronnie. I'll get over <laughs> yeah. it. Noah Purrington asked, uh, who has been your favorite person to interview after a heat? My favorite person? I think it's Italo at the end of last year. That moment for me, I actually ended up crying. I was just like, it was so pure. And Anna Makova asks, do you still occasionally ride spider surfboards? I do. Um, Spider Murphy actually shaped me a missile, which is one of his insane models. I think it's a missile too, but it's just amazing. And I love that opportunity to connect with him when I was back home and um, catch up with him. And he's still surfing. Like he, so Spider's that shaper that can like shape a board for you, go out with you, surf with you, and then get on that board that he's created for you and surf it himself and feel exactly what's going on with that equipment. So there's like a special bond with a shaper that has that ability to do that. That's awesome. So we mentioned you signed with Repurl at the end of 2016. Um, you're a free surfer, you're, you're a commentator on the WSL. What are the goals for Rosie Hodge moving forward? What do you see as we as we exit the the odd year that's been 2020 in quarantine, like what do you want to achieve in your own career in the next few years? Oh, wow. It's a, that's an interesting question. I think I'm so content. Like I absolutely love my job. I would love to keep improving and, and keep doing it. I love writing for Ripco and having that opportunity. Um, I love the people that work there. And, and I've just been feeling such a special loyalty to um, Ripco and that surf brand, just seeing what the surf industry is obviously going through at the moment. So I love that aspect of my life. And I'm also enjoying being home and spending time with my husband and my dog. So, you know, family on the horizon, that's something that I, I look forward to to creating in the next couple of years, hopefully. And um, yeah, just hopefully maybe connecting with, with younger surfers, maybe back home in South Africa. There's a lot of programs where you can help people from disadvantaged backgrounds and, and maybe getting more involved with those kind of things and, and seeing where that leads. Well, you are a hugely important voice in surfing and we all benefit from hearing more of you. So I hope we get to hear more of you in the next few years. Thank you, Dave. I really appreciate that. Before we go, uh, I know you studied up for this one. So we have the lightning <laughs> round. These are 10 <laughs> questions. You get to answer them as quick as you can. One board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad bonzer, or finless. I'm a twin fin, twin fin go fish. Coffee or tea? Coffee, 100%. Burrito or pizza? This is a tricky one for me. I'm, I love them both. Uh, pizza. Last book you read? 
I didn't, it's an oxymoron. I didn't read the book. I listened to it on audiobook, but it was Kitchen Confidential, Anthony Bourdain. Okay. Uh, best surf film ever. Ooh, best surf film ever. Um, I think Endless, uh, like, oh man, there's so many. I think um, Busting Down the Door had a big impact on me. Um, I'll go with that. That's a good one. One wave you never have to go back to. This is this is a hard one for me because the worse the wave, the more waves I get. So I'm not like I'm like whatever. Like that's totally fine with me. If you only got to surf one wave the rest of your life, uh, my home break that I grew up on. If it was a hybrid between that point break and lowers. Good one. Uh, best person to share a lineup with. Um, my dad and Ian. That's a good one. You got to share a car ride with him in a minute. So good answer. <laughs> exactly. A long one. Worst person to share a lineup with. Oh my gosh, this brings me back to my worst wave uh, answer. I'm like, I'd rather surf by myself than with almost anyone. So. <laughs> no, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a, there's a certain type of person that you don't always want to surf with. Totally fair. Uh, last one, finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by? Having my second cup of coffee, packing up the car, giving my dog a cuddle and my husband a hug and getting on the road. Awesome. Well, Rosie Hodge, thank you so much for joining us on the lineup this morning. Thank you for your time and your stories. And thank you for being a voice in surfing. You guys, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for the great content. I look forward to every lineup podcast. So thank you. So that's it. That's the lineup presented by Michelob Ultra Pure Gold's conversation with Rosie Hodge. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much to Rosie for her time. 2020 continues to be a year that challenges us to review the way we approach our lives and the lives of those around us. And as the world attempts to open up at various paces after the pandemic, uh, it's important to stay educated and diligent. The CDC's identified symptoms for COVID-19 include runny nose, sore throat, fever, cough, and shortness of breath. If you're not feeling well, call your doctor. And the World Health Organization's behavioral recommendations that everyone should follow. Wash your hands, avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. If you have to cough or sneeze, do so into your elbow. Social distancing, avoid groups of 10 or more people, and stay away from everyone as much as you can. If you're not feeling well, get checked out as soon as possible, and if you can, work from home, do it. And a massive thank you to the essential workers out there from hospital staff to grocery workers, delivery drivers, firemen, and everyone out there helping us through the pandemic to keep people safe. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode of The Lineup at Low Tide. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you then.